0: This is The Shift Podcast. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, dry shampoo. Six different companies have had their products get recalled for containing cancerous chemicals. But what does it mean? How will they affect all of us? And so much more we need to learn. What kind of other products should we be concerned about? Dr. Paul Demers, Director of Toronto's Occupational Cancer Research Centre and Professor of Occupational Environmental Health. At the University of Toronto explains what exactly toxic chemicals are and how we can avoid them all. Plus, what does it take to write a scary story? What are the scariest stories of all time? Well, we have a guest. Her name is Ruth Robbins, Professor of English Literature at Leeds Beckett University. Helps us through iconic scary stories, how they were written, why are they written, and what do all scary stories have in common? All this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast.
1: This is the
0: Shift Podcast. Recall, recall, recall. That's all we keep hearing. Man, man, we get it all the time. It's kind of like when a newspaper used to publish an apology. Remember when they would get something wrong in the old days of newspapers? That's a terrible thing to say, but it's true. And the apology would be on the very back page in the very bottom corner we as consumers, it's our responsibility to know what it is that we're eating, what it is that we're drinking. I'm also a a business owner. So I take on the responsibility that if I'm going to sell a product, you want it to be a safe product. Now, some businesses, of course, the only reason they do that is they don't want the lawsuit. But hey, greed is one thing and capitalism is a completely different thing. But we have been hearing a lot about recalls. And Inside some of those recalls and inside some of this conversation includes the dry shampoo recall. I don't know if you've heard that one. There was another one about Brazier's sports bras for women, um, that has also gone out. Why? They all have one thing in common. And that one thing in common is chemicals that aren't supposed to be there are there. So this is where we bring in our guest. And our guest today is, um, is a really interesting guest, in my opinion, because of the fact that it allows us a really good look at chemicals in our lives, in particular at work. And Paul Demers is here. And Paul is, uh, Paul's got a long title. I got to tell you, Paul, I hope you have three business cards, because this is good. I'm going to try to get it all right. Doctor, uh, Dr. Paul Demers is Doctor and Professor, Director, Occupational Cancer Research Center, Toronto, and... Professor, University of Toronto, Dalla Lana School of Public Health.
2: Very good. Thank you.
0: Wow. You're a bit of a slacker with the education there. Hey, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it me busy for a few years. Yeah, I'll say. Uh, thanks for being here and thanks for sharing this. The two quick stories is, uh, which both are at globalnews.ca if you want to check them out, by the way, is dry shampoo was one of them. And dry shampoo having uh, cancer-causing benzene was the the one that was in in the headline for that one. And the other one is is it the BPA? Is that the one the plastic that was in the drinking bottles before? But they took that out. But they've been finding it in I think it was Nike's and other brands as well. Sports bras. Now that's touching your skin right on the uh, on the organs. So this can't be good. And we're seeing. Are we getting more aware, Paul, of chemicals in our lives? or are our test detection systems getting better, or is it happening more often?
2: What, what's going on? I have a feeling it's not really happening more often. I think we're we're actually uh, we're a bit more aware and we're testing more, hopefully. And hopefully uh, both producers and uh, regulators are testing more because it's it's uh, you know we use chemicals to produce a lot of products, and it's easy to screw that up. And if you screw up just a little bit, you know, poor quality control, and you can end up uh, with toxic chemicals uh, or or other things uh, remaining inside of consumer products, which is not good.
0: I I guess I I always, maybe I think about this too simplistically, and this is not yours or even my area of expertise, but I want to imagine someone assembling a product or putting all the pieces in the bucket. So the computer assembles the product. I mean, that to me seems pretty pure, right? Like here's the pieces, it puts it together. When you mix your Your dry shampoo recipe, it's like, you know, half a cup of sugar, right? Here's a three quarters of a cup of flour. So unless the sugar or the flour is contaminated, now we're not talking about food in this case, but I try to translate that with a simple example. How is it possible that this gets into a quality control thing when benzene is in it? I mean, that seems like a a designed thing that either nobody caught or someone's buying the cheap junk you know, off of the, the used website online or back alley, you know?
2: I mean, it, it could be just a matter of getting poor basic products. You know, benzene is, I mean, it is a cancer-causing agent, but it's a big production chemical. We make, um, the last production figures I saw were about 600,000 tons of benzene per year produced in Canada. Wow. Uh, so we use it a lot. We use it mostly to make other chemicals. Uh And when you do that, you uh, mix benzene with other things and you try to react it out to create this new chemical. Well, if if there's always, you know, if you don't do it right, there might be a chance that some benzene remains in that, and that can be a problem. Uh, uh, So that's one way that something could occur. Uh, Another way is that you just, uh, you know, you get a product from, uh, different places. We live in a kind of a global economy, and and maybe it's poorly produced elsewhere, and uh, so there's a lots of ways that things can kind of enter in the stream, and it's it's just a matter of always, you know, trying to test for things and maintain quality control. And benzene is, you know, it's a toxic chemical, but it, it naturally occurs in a lot of petrochemical products, so you really do have to be vigilant for it. You have to be looking. Now, when we
0: look at the BPA end of it, I mean, you've got Nike, you've got North Face, Asics, Brooks, All in Motion, Pink, Fila, Athletica. Like these are big brands, shirts, Reebok, Mizuno, right? Like these are big brands, uh, BPA and polyester based clothing. So now we've got that tiptoeing and that's an American research thing, by the way. So now we've got it on our skin and with us Uh, in our retail environment. So that's really concerning. Women need to know that, especially for the bras. I mean, it's one thing to have it in a t-shirt and have it on you, but women wear bras tightly, closely for long periods of time and for long life cycles as well. But this is the retail end of the conversation, Paul, and your expertise um, leans into more the work side. Should we, we be more worried about these retail scenarios? Or should we be really looking at our employers or at least work environments as a riskier bad chemical uh, place to to look at? I mean, I get the feeling that this is inflammatory because it's in our lives and we feel a little bit betrayed by it. But in real life, it's possible that I'm thinking work is probably worse. Well, you
2: know, a reason that I was drawn to looking at health effects of chemicals at work is because in workplaces, people are exposed to much higher levels. Generally, you know, it could be 10, a hundred, a 1, thousand times higher. And it's easier to look at the health effects there. Um, now these are healthy working adults. So it's not, um, not children, not people who are frail. Uh, hopefully people are wearing, we're protected with uh chemical you know protective clothing and things like that mm-hmm. we also regulate workplaces
0: is that a concentration or just like a volume exposure type of scenario
2: it's a concentration that can get into the air yeah uh, you know because they're using the raw chemicals there to produce things and uh if you can imagine i mean they're not trying to re- to release things into the air, but let's say you're at a chemical plant, there could be a leak in a pipe or something like that. Uh, They're not trying to do that because they're trying to actually react everything out and make this new chemical, Uh, but accidents can happen and people can be exposed to much higher levels there. Or if we think of, let's say, pesticides, because we worry about pesticides and things, well, if you're a farm worker and you're applying pesticides or a farmer spraying pesticides, you know, uh, uh on crops, you're going to have much higher levels than of the trace amounts that might be left on some vegetables when it gets to market. Right. So it really is, you know, the kind of level that's there and people are doing the same work for, you know, seven or eight hours a day, five days a week, years of doing the same thing. So. Um, people at work can get exposed to much higher levels. On the other hand, you know, there's a lot more people that can be exposed to those low levels in, in the general environment. It's just much harder to study there. Um, and the health effects are much worse at higher levels. So they're easier to see. Um, I think of so farmers
0: when you say that, I think of fertilizers yeah. and chemicals that farmers work with and they typically do it. I mean, it's, a, I would assume a high exposure, for short periods of time now they're long days but it's typically seasonal so that must be hard to flag when you've got a farmer who maybe works with something for two weeks and then not for six months and then for two weeks at mega like exposure but then not for six months again and then it would take time for that to start to unfold that must be difficult to follow those scenarios like that which could be quite possibly some of the most impacted ones
2: yeah and you know the the useful thing for us is that, I mean, in the case of farmers, they do tend to work as farmers for a big chunk of their lives. Uh, they're pretty aware of what chemicals or what pesticides they've had to use because they have to they purchase those as well as apply them. So research studies are there, but they look not just at what people did last week or this year, they try to ask long questionnaires about what people did over many years. In the case of people who work in kind of for large, uh, large companies, those companies keep records on what people did as part of their job. Um, They kept records on what chemicals they used. So again, it's, it does make it, you know, helps us be able to study those kind of things. But you're right, we're looking at things over many years. And then trying to then look at the health effects much later on. It's a challenging thing to do, especially for something like cancer that takes years to develop.
0: I guess there's no real way to say what's the worst. Eh? Like, I know formaldehyde comes into your um comes into your world a lot in your research. And I, mm-hmm. I think of formaldehyde because I think of, you know, the glue in carpets, mm-hmm. um, glue in furniture, particle board glue holding wood bits together. Like formaldehyde is everywhere. And it's not actually the formaldehyde, if I remember my science properly, isn't it? The um, it's just the gas that comes from formaldehyde, or is it both?
2: Yeah, formaldehyde, like benzene, is something that can evaporate into the air under the under the right conditions. Now, if you have it, you know, reacted into particle board, it shouldn't be. But you know, it gets wet, it gets deteriorated, it can get into the air if it's in glue. Glue is a you know, something you spread and then the liquid that's in there kind of evaporates out. Um, the same thing is true with benzene. Um, we just don't smell benzene quite as much as formaldehyde. It really punches you in the nose if there's too much of it in the air. But it's the same kind of thing, really. Really,
0: eh? Can we smell these things? I mean, you know how they put the, the egg rotten egg smell and propane and those things? um are there are there clues for us in this or do we just need to read the label and trust it because it seems to me that we're if I look around my office right now right I've got curtains I've got carpet I've got particle board in my desk I mean there is nothing here that potentially couldn't have something like that in it and we often go new carpet smell but it's not we probably should we go chemical gas things right like it doesn't seem to make sense
2: no, and you can't always smell it and you don't know what you are smelling. That's why we have to measure it. But I mean, if I give the example of um, of benzene, at least I'm used to more workplace regulations. In a workplace, you're supposed to keep benzene levels less than a half a part per million in the air. So you're not going to be able to just do it with your nose then. Now, formaldehyde has a very strong smell. Uh, you know, benzene, if it's high enough in the air, you might be able to smell it, but not if it's at a very low level. So you can't always count on your nose uh, for these things. It's why, uh, you know, we really have to rely upon the manufacturer to make sure it's not in there and, you know, regulators to test these things on a regular basis to make sure that stuff isn't slipping into these products.
0: Is there any health effects that you've seen that either in the workplace or or in general that that you know that that really start to get people? Because I, I was thinking that you know that breathing thing's probably it because we we the gas is coming off of it. But that could come across as an allergy, I guess. We could confuse it with allergies. I know that in today's world, especially after the last couple of years, we tend to be hypersensitive to every time we get a sniffle or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or do we need to be aware that when we walk into a room and all of a sudden we feel a little bit wheezy, we feel a little bit sneezy or, or tickly in the nose or whatever, that it's possible? It's actually not an allergy, that it's something in that room that we should be aware of? Like, what are you seeing at work? Because I think of those people that handle products like this, they think they're doing it properly with their PPE or whatever, but maybe
2: they're not. Well, we should be alert to these things. I mean, some things are what we call, you know, irritants, they irritate the nose and the eyes and those things give you a signal. Um, You know, in the case of things like um, benzene and some of the other petrochemicals, if there's too much in the air, uh, people might actually become, uh, you know, dizzy or get headaches or get drowsy uh, from it. Um, and so it is important to pay attention if you feel, you know, if you feel something and you kind of associate it with what you're doing, but it, it sometimes can be really hard to then tag it in there. Now, if you're in a workplace and you've got a whole bunch of people around you and you, you talk about how you're feeling and everybody feels it, yeah. then you've got a good signal there. Uh, but if it's just you alone, it's hard to differentiate where it's coming from.
0: Is it possible all board meetings have benzene? Because that's how I feel after board meetings.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, meetings do make me uh, drowsy as and well. Dizzy
0: you too. <laughs> yeah. Drowsy and dizzy. I'm not the only one, see? Yeah. There you yeah. go. Oh, yeah. This is fascinating. What else do we need to know here, Paul? I mean, Dr. Paul Demers, you have a long education in all of this. Um, tons of experience in it. Are there other alternatives? Should we be doing this differently or do we just need to handle this properly and we'll be okay? What do we need to know here as Canadians that we don't know?
2: Well, I think it's in, you know, I mean, it's not always cheap to regulate, but that really is something that is important, especially when we live in this world economy, you know, we've some of the recalls we've heard about have been, you know, like toxic metals and jewelry or toys even right I mean that kind of stuff we really have to be careful with yeah. uh, there's some things that we know where their chemicals are like glues um, we should always be careful with and you know paints you know you're going to you want to air places out mm-hmm. uh, but these some of these consumer products particularly the ones you know like you were saying that come in contact with our skin or you know in the case of these ones where you're actually spraying something on yourself. I mean, it's automatically going into the air and you
0: breathe yeah. It in. Yeah. Uh, well, like that spray, the dry shampoo is a spray, I believe, right? Like you just spray it around yeah. your head, like a hairspray. And, and that yeah. just seems like a recipe for, for, for danger.
2: It's really, I mean, the purpose is, you know, of doing that is to kind of, you know, get it into the air. And then if you're aiming it at yourself, it's really bad news. So I think that these things are, are a signal to us to be, you know, hyper vigilant on these things and, you know, in terms of regulating them and then also to, you know, encourage manufacturers by wanting to purchase, you know, products that only use safe ingredients. Uh, but even then, you know, not everything that appears to be safe, you can still have uh, things that we have to maybe always be looking at to make sure that nothing has slipped in there that we don't want it
0: to. Okay. I have a question and it's a selfish question. And I, I don't know if it's lands in your world or not when we talk about all the things around, you know, if you're just joining us, I mean, things that have formaldehyde or maybe chemicals like this includes glue and particle board. There's, you know, fabric products and and different draperies and all of that stuff. Here's the big question. Mattresses. When I say mattresses, Paul, what what happens in your chest? Do you go, uh, or do you go, no, we're doing pretty good there.
2: You know, <laughs> I have to say, I have, I'll put my disclaimer, I'm not an expert in consumer products. Uh, you know, with mattresses, I uh, I don't know. I really don't know. You know, it would be something because you are sleeping on things and you're rolling around and moving around with them. Uh, but hopefully you, you get any of these new products and you smell stuff on them, you know, but then you keep them for years. And hopefully the stuff that, you know, off gases that evaporates from them goes away. Uh, But I don't know anything specifically about mattresses. I'm sorry. No,
0: that's okay. And the reason why I ask is, and I'm glad that you say that, because I mean, when we look at, when we evaluate the things in our houses, I think that if we're going to talk about the effects of stuff, and and here's my thought, is that if you get yourself a new mattress or maybe a a foamy pad for the top of your bed, and all of a Mm -hmm. sudden you feel like your health changes that's the flag for me. Like, I don't mean to throw mattresses under the bus. I mean, it's very clear that these chemicals are everywhere. And in fact, the Canada.ca website has a scale of what is acceptable in your home that you can look at. So, I mean, so it's not about throwing mattresses under the bus, more about, um, you know, that, that feeling that you talk about about workplace when you find out about other people in your house. If you and your partner share a mattress and all of a sudden you guys are feeling dizzy or not sleeping very well ever since you got the mattress, maybe it's worth looking at. And that, that's to me, is the part that we can share with people that we need to be able to look at these things and say, well, wait a second, you know what? I haven't slept well since I hung those new drapes in, in the in the bedroom. Maybe mm-hmm. just take them out for a week or two and see if it feels better and start there. I, that, to me, becomes that personal responsibility part in our lives away from work, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I discovered I was allergic to down, which is not a chemical, but, you know, I discovered because, you know, uh, you know, a down comforter and not realizing I switched from a different type of thing, but being aware when you switch products and if you feel differently, I think is always a good, uh, a good thing. There's choices out there to be made. Um, That is one thing that's in your control. Sometimes they're not in your control. Uh, you know, but, but that is something that is in your control. Dr. Paul Demers here. Um, If
0: we're, if we're going to flag the workplace environment and give people the opportunity to at least be a little bit more self-aware in your work, have, have there been industries, you know, I mean, if you're working in a chemical plant, that's one thing, you know that you're exposed to stuff, but if people don't know that they're exposed to things, are there any industries that we should flag or jobs or particular roles that you've discovered in your work that maybe people don't know, quite as much about this as they should. I mean, when I've taken any sort of industrial work training, whether it was working at airlines or, you know, warehouses or whatever in my life, the chemical training was always pretty good. I mean, the occupational health and safety training was always pretty good. I don't know if I knew the details of it, but, you know, is there anything that we should flag for everybody that we can help them out with before we're done?
2: Well, I there are really huge things. I mean, you're right that, you know, when you're in some of these kind of traditional jobs, you know, that have a lot of hazards involved, um, you know, usually there is training and usually people are aware of it. And also usually, you know, often workplace inspectors will show up. Um, you know, if I give an example of, uh, you know, one of the things that my, it's not my area of research, but my colleagues are looking at, um, nail salons, you know, and, and uh, places like hairdressers again, there's there's a lot of uh, chemicals, and when you put those on, they're measuring, you know, a lot in the air. Um, now our concern is with the people who are applying those, you know, for eight hours a day. But those are you know less regulated workplaces. Um, so smaller workplaces are are harder for uh, inspectors to just randomly show up at. Um, so we should always try to be aware. Of uh, what we're working in, and uh, for most workplaces, there should be a, what we call a you know a safety data sheet in there that tells you what, in, what are the health effects associated with the chemical that I'm working with or the products that I'm working with, and uh, your employer should have those. Um, a challenge with a place, you know, some of these places is if they're not getting their if they're getting their stuff from retail operations um, there are no safety data sheets that come from those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what you get when you get in the personal care products. Uh, and one reason that it's important to, uh, be studying those. Uh, so, but there, it's surprising how many different groups out there, you know, cleaning products, uh, you know, are something else that we have to always be looking at. And sometimes, uh, again, if you're uh, in the company that makes the cleaning products, well then, You know, it's regulated, people are trained, but then those get out as consumer products and maybe people are less aware of that. Uh, So there are a lot of things, I think, to be vigilant about out there.
0: In today's eco world that we live in, right, one of the ways that we can save a bunch of fuel and packaging product and everything else is concentrated products. Uh, most of our products today are I mean industrial is usually concentrated in some fashion but most retail products go to the store just take dish soap as an example um, it comes ready to go like here's your bottle full of it the actual concentrate of soap in there is very small typically diluted I know one idea that gets bad at about is maybe we should go back to concentrate orange juice is a great example you know you'd buy your frozen concentrate you'd add water and nowadays we're using these plastic bottles, and we're doing four liters of juice, and it's weight, and that water weight takes time and fuel and all the things to ship, packaging. Mm-hmm. In the industrial world, though, um, you know, does if if I said to you, hey Paul, look, look let's just all go to concentrate. But then I, what I'm hearing is that if we all went to a concentrate scenario, it's potential that we get increase that exposure in a dangerous way. Of course, depending on the product, but you know, we as users aren't necessarily educated or qualified enough to be able to mix concentrate safely with the right protective equipment on it. Would that be a big flag for you if that was the idea?
2: Well, certainly you'd want to be more careful, you know, um, you know, because if, I mean, let's say you have, you know, even simple things that are, you know, acids, if you concentrate those too much, it's going to be a lot more, uh, a lot more hazardous. I mean, there's a bit of a back and forth here because maybe if it was more concentrated and, and you had hazardous symbols all over it, maybe you'd be more aware that you should be careful. Uh, And when you're not aware and you're not careful and you don't know what you're working with, where I think you have as much danger as anything. uh, I think it's always good to know what you're working with, no matter what, but uh, concentrating it would sure concentrate the properties as well. Right.
0: Yeah. Concentrate the product, concentrate the problems. Maybe that could be a, a good summary of, of what we're looking at.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating but I mean, stuff. I, I feel a little conflicted on it because you know, when it comes to consumer products, you want to have less packaging and things like that, and maybe then we use less packaging that way. But mm-hmm. uh, still, it uh, it's something you'd want to be more reading what those labels say before yeah. you use
0: it. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm right there with you. I always look at it the same way. I'm like, boy, this we could have a big impact on all the things we do if we just reduce packaging, and yeah. uh, it would be a nice way to do it. But if it's not going to be safe especially around chemicals and soaps and all those cleaners, then not sure that's the best idea either. Uh, Paul, there's so much more to be had here as you guys keep working through this inside uh, your study, your colleague's study. We'd love to
2: hear more. Thanks Shane. It's, uh, it's been uh, great talking with you. And uh, yeah, I'm always happy to come back and talk about other things as they come up. This is the SHIFT Podcast.
0: We are connecting all across the Atlantic Ocean um, to a uh, a new friend. Ruth Robbins joins us here from the uh, from the UK. And Ruth, we have Halloween happening here for us. And I'm super curious because when you go back to the history of Halloween, we get ourselves a, you know, a a lot of links to Ireland and all these different things. Before we get started, since you're a professor of English literature at Leeds Beckett University in the UK, um. What is, is Halloween even really a thing for you guys there? Like, do you even do it?
1: Well, we do, um, but increasingly we, it, it's an American thing I think that we do. Uh, so it does exist uh, and it probably started here, probably in Scotland actually rather than Ireland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but increasingly um, the, the kind of version that we do in the UK you would recognize um as being very much the American version I think
0: that's absolutely fantastic we um
1: we uh you know I, I it's growing in in neat ways
0: I think in today's world it's growing in ways that it's um that we are we are seeing Halloween I would go this way let me get my philosophical because I'm a philosophical person <laughs> that's where I live um is that in in this we I would say that we actually wear a costume 364 days of the year. And Halloween is the one day of the year that we don't, that we truly express ourselves and who we want to be that day. People often don't spend time thinking, okay, well, what is my mask I put on when I go to work every day, right? When I go out in public. And that's how I look at Halloween. So I would go, I'm not a Halloween fan either. I'm just like, meh, I don't care. But it, but I do admire the fact, and I think that we would be better off if we all spent a little bit more time with this. We've also seen some of the storytelling around Halloween go from being either slasher, kind of gross, scary Mm -hmm. into some really creative thriller writing. And with your literature background and everything that you teach, do you get a little excited about where some of the spooky stories are starting to head? Because there's a lot more depth to it.
1: Yeah, um, they are starting to be really interesting. Um, there's, new technology makes a big difference, actually. Uh, I heard, just as I was trying to come on earlier this morning, you were talking about Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Um, and obviously, I just suffered a ghost in the machine when I couldn't get on earlier. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is that there's been some really creative stuff on, on Twitter, uh, interesting stories about being haunted, and not just by trolls, but, you know, really oh, haunted. Yeah, <laughs> so Uh, And that goes back, you know, it goes back in history that as soon as you get a new technology, uh, somebody will make a ghost story out of it. Somebody will make something scary out of it. Um, It's been happening for about 200 years, I reckon.
0: Do you find that inside the stories of Halloween that it becomes so much more about taking advantage of those things that we don't understand? Right. Like, I mean, that's really what it's boiled down to for a lot of Um, You know, dark places, we can't see what's happening, we don't know what the noise is, we just don't understand it. And then maybe a good writer takes and just colorizes that whole thing. How
1: does it work? Well, I think that we live in a society, a world where we think we know almost everything. Um, But of course, we don't. We don't know everything. Um, There are lots of mysterious things about our own world. And actually, the technology thing is one of those um, elements, because we don't understand how any of the technology works. Nobody knows how the computer we're talking on actually works. True. Um, I have no idea. So there so the, the, those sets of mysteries in our everyday life—how the how the light comes on when we turn the switch, how our car works—all of those things, they're kind of quite mysterious to us. So we seek explanations that are not necessarily the most. Um, most scientific, uh, because the science is beyond most of us. We, ca- we can't understand it. Um, and so those stories start to proliferate because we need to find... Stories are always about explanation in some way. So we always try to find an explanation. And sometimes the supernatural provides a better explanation.
0: Now, we live in fear. And one of the conversations we had about um, fear, our guest who was on shared with us how people who watch scary movies have more inclined or in common with maybe someone who's a rock climber, who is an adrenaline junkie than somebody who likes scary things. So um, fear I would say is one of those places that we live in just kind of like the Halloween thing. We actually live in fear all the time. We spend more time trying to get out of fear than we do um, living peaceful and secure like you say understanding what's going on does that work in the favor of the author when they're creating a scary story because we sort of just function in fear always
1: i I think that's a really sad thing to
0: say i I know it's true though (laughs) i agree well it depends actually because you could look at it from the positive way and say look at all the times that we escape the fear and we have a good time right yeah
1: yeah that's that's kind of how i think it works um the scary movie the scary story are about being frightened in a safe way uh so you get the the kind of high from being you know you're you're shaking, you're getting excited. Um, but you also know that you can switch the film off. You can walk out of the film cinema. You can sh- close the book. You know that actually this terrifying thing doesn't necessarily leak out um, into the real world. So you get the adrenaline high without necessarily um, really doing anything that's terrifying.
0: What is the best of the scary stories? Okay. You do literature. That's what you do. You're a professor. So what really is the, the best?
1: I really like the ones which are about unmotivated evil. Um, So there's a kind of um, set of traditions in the 19th century where what you're doing in a ghost story, for example, is righting wrongs. Uh, You're getting justice at a time when the criminal justice system couldn't do it for you. So the supernatural invades the modern world and kind of makes it possible uh, for justice to be done. But actually, the the more interesting stories for me are the ones where you don't entirely know why the bad thing is happening and you never get an explanation. Um, A classic example of that is Charles Dickens' The Signalman. Um, Definitely want to recommend to your listeners. It's a really creepy story. And it's a, a nice one because it's about both an ancient space and a really modern thing, the railway. Um, and th- that modern thing doesn't actually manage um, the the process of being terrified actually to death. It's a it's a very frightening story. Um, slightly less horrifying, but equally disturbing, I think, is a story by M.R. James. Um, it's called The Mezzotint. A uh, mezzotint is a kind of etching or, or uh, picture picture. Um, and somebody buys this picture and watches a series of events unfold like a cartoon only like the most terrifying cartoon you've ever seen um, Mm. and can't do anything to stop it so and there's no explanation given we don't know why it's happening or what exactly is happening or why this particular person has been haunted Um, and those stories I think are the ones that kind of you know they really grab you I think.
0: You speak of justice and I think I've never thought of that before, that the one common thread. I was trying to think of what is the one common thread in most horror movies? And it seems to be that justice would be it. I mean I think you I think you just enlightened me on that because if you think about it, even the most evil of the characters are seeking some sort of justice of their own, even though it might be contrary to justice as we know it today. Um, it is quite an art to write these stories though. It's hard. It seems to me hard to write them with grace where there creates a little bit of empathy for, for the demon or what they've been through, but it also seems to be where some of the magic lies. Tell me about it.
1: Yeah. Um, not all ghosts are evil, I guess. So the, the, in the ghost story, very often it's someone coming back, as I say, to right a wrong, um, to either uncover a crime um, or to get justice for a crime that's been committed that everybody knows about, but nothing got done about it at the time. Um, so quite often we are sympathetic to the ghost, certainly in the 19th century stories, but um, And I think it depends on the setup, doesn't it? It's it's partly about uh, showing a situation in which someone has been badly treated and has no recourse except beyond the grave. But then, you know, they're also terrifying. So anything that Mm -hmm. um, breaks that boundary between life and death is in some sense terrifying. And I guess that's part of the reason why both vampires and zombies are so big these days. We're kind of really interested in those uh, those possibilities.
0: Well, it seems to be there's a place where somebody was powerless and they tried to become powerful in some way. Um, and that's, I mean, that happens in all of the movies. Like somebody had that strength stolen from them and then they, they, the pendulum swings badly the other way or quite drastically the other way. And then they're able to um, they try to recoup that.
1: But want to have the next movie. Um, they always leave a residue, you know, something. Leaks still. That's, not true mostly of the 19th century ghost story, but it's definitely true of what we do in the contemporary world. And there's probably a capitalist reason for that. As I say, they want mm. the, the, the sequel. But there's also mm. something that's kind of quite, um, uh, it's not too neat. Uh, maybe people don't want it to be too neat. Uh, so that there's always the possibility that the, the bad thing will return.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's got to be that open space, right? That it's not quite, you never really know the bad guy falls in the river and then you never see his body because you never quite know. What's coming up next? This is fascinating. I love this, Ruth. Thank you for joining us and sharing this. Ruth is Professor of English Literature at Leeds Beckett University in the UK. And now Ruth is author of several books, Oscar Wilde, Literary Feminism, Subjectivity, Articles on Short Fiction, including a book on the British short story. Is there a favorite thing that you've written, Ruth, that you can tell us about in about 30 seconds that, that you can point us to?
1: Well, I... I've got a real soft spot for, God, for Oscar Wilde. And yeah. by the way, he wrote one of the best comic ghost stories out there called The Canterville Ghost. Always worth a read. It's very funny.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for being patient with us today and working with the
1: technology, Ruth,
0: and being a part of the shift. I appreciate you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, that's Ruth Robbins, Professor of English Lit at the Leeds Beckett University in the
2: UK.